Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Summer or winter, he's the sound of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Morena, good morning New Zealand. 9.04 here on SENZ uh, for the next three hours. Uh, I, Ian Smith uh, will look after you uh, along with John Day uh, and Brian Rarity. We will uh, get you through uh, with uh, various subjects uh, on the plate Jacob Oram, the White Ferns bowling coach, of course, former Black Cap, Jacob Oram. Uh, how they uh, place, they're going into a, a series uh, very shortly. Uh, in fact, today they started T20 against India, and then they've got some one-day internationals in preparation for the World Cup. So uh, what do they hope to get out of it? How are the things looking for Jake Oram there? Uh, Wes Clark, he's the Hurricanes poor coach. Uh, we're going to uh, have a little uh, look at uh, how they're set up. How'd they get the name? Uh, he was part of that process, so Wes will be with us just after 930 Former All Black uh, and Sky Pundit James Parsons after 10 o'clock on some rugby matters, of course. Nicky Styrus, Andrew Gordy, the panel uh, just after 10.20. Uh, Dougal Allen, coast to coast, defending champ just after 11 o'clock. And we'll have uh, updates and news, etc. from uh, the Winter Olympics as well as we go on throughout this Wednesday morning. Sport is our religion. And here is Smithy Sermon. Well, every game, be it summer or winter, there traditionally appears a darling, a face, someone by performance and appearance who emerges the pin-up performer. Three days in it appears, Beijing has found their snow princess. Watch out for the rapidly growing profile of Eileen Bengu, a.k.a. Gu Eileen. Born in San Francisco to an American father and a first-generation immigrant mother of Chinese origin, Eileen Gu has competed for China since June 2019 by requesting a change of nation with the International Ski Federation. Her goal? To compete for China in these very Winter Olympics. Mission accomplished. At the age of 18, pretty standard it seems in these games, she was yesterday crowned Big Air Golden Girl, Olympic champion. This on the back of an already glistening career in the snow, two world championships, two X Games titles, and many at youth level. A bona fide superstar adopted wholly by China, much to the chagrin of the USA. The cameras love her. She's a fashion model, an advocate for anti-Asian racism in the United States, and supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. She plays the piano, has had a cameo appearance in a movie. She's got a reasonable resume for one so young. Uh, Eileen is not that popular in the States, though, a victim of death threats and endless hate over social media since her decision to compete for China three years ago. Uh, for, for the next couple of weeks, Eileen is in her happy place. You'll see more of her, and you will enjoy it. And amazingly, on Eileen's special day, just coincidentally, China managed to trot out tennis star Pong Shui, the tennis star shrouded in mystery by her supposed disappearance and abuse. They sat her alongside Olympic President Thomas Buck right behind Eileen at the end of her run. Happy, smiling, engaging, the second incredible performance of the day. Gold in the big air, 
Golden PR. Nice day out, China. Well, the White Ferns road to the World Cup really does ramp up today with the T20 against India, which is set to, to get underway at the 1 o'clock before the two teams play five one-day internationals before the tournament begin, begins. And we're joined this morning by uh, the White Ferns bowling coach, of course, former Black Cap as well, Jacob Oram. Jake, thanks for your time this morning. Not a problem, Smithy. Nice to talk to you. How's it, go- yeah, how's, uh, how's it preparing for a World Cup as a coach as opposed to a player, mate? Uh, well, the nerves quite aren't what they are in terms of the performance on the field. I mean, that's out of our control as coaches and uh, still obviously we're doing what we can with preparation. I mean, the Indian series is, is a huge marker for us, but obviously the, the, the pinnacle event for the summer and what we are all focused on is that World Cup. So it's a stepping stone to that, but we still need to make sure we get into some good habits and win some games and, and find out, you know, I suppose it's a sporting cliche hitting at tournaments, but find out our best combination because we've got a squad of 15 here, and, and all of them could make that starting 11 in, in Game 1 of the World Cup. So um, I'm really excited, uh, but obviously a marked difference from when you, when you are a player. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I think every time uh, you go to a World Cup, then you finalise your squad. I think the rules change a wee bit. Uh, people know exactly that they're there, they're going in it. The fringe players know they're going, and I think there's a nice sort of uh, starting point almost uh, for a squad. How, how, how's the feeling uh, within the group? Oh, the feeling's really good, actually. I mean, over the last, probably since about June last year, we have had oh, eight or nine camps, week-long camps. Uh, we had a seven-week tour to the UK. Uh, the players have had, obviously, their own Super Smash and some Hayley Burton Johnson Shield competitions. So there's been a lot of cricket and a lot of hands-on coaching time for us um, with the White Ferns specifically. So our preparation couldn't have been any better. And obviously, must think, I suppose New Zealand cricket for for those opportunities, but um, the the field and the squad is is fine. They they're as excited as what I mentioned I am before. They know it's a huge mm. couple of months. Um, we are together. The World Cup final is on I think April third, so we're together. We we got together on February fifth, so it's it's a good two months together. And you know if they weren't excited and um, pumped up by what is going to come up over the next two months, then they're probably in the wrong vocation. But I can safely say that everyone's ready to go. Uh, we heard that uh, you had a camp in Akaroa. We also were told that there was not a, a really any uh, cricketing equipment as such, no bats, no balls. So a very much, uh, yeah. I, I guess, uh, a, a squad-building thing behind the scenes there. Can you tell us a, a wee bit about what uh, what you did from a coach's point of view? Yeah, look, that was, I suppose, the best way to... Well, it was. We, we termed that a retreat, um, and it was about... It was sort of half bonding as a group, not that we needed to do that any further, but we had some social activities and uh, we had a couple of good nights, you know, um, where we just tried to get together and get to know each other that, that little bit more um, intimately and, and it was good fun uh, and that was the purpose of the camp, but also that was sort of the, I suppose, the the night activities, there were a couple of hikes up hills for a bit of a physical challenge, mm-hmm. but ultimately it was um, meetings to discuss everything from what the campaign plan is through to roles and responsibilities, expectations, tactics. To be honest with you, Smithy, stuff that we had discussed multiple, multiple times before, but it was just an opportunity to refresh that and to confirm some stuff that we had discussed um, to some end previously. 
Well, I mean, it's been a massive diet of T20 cricket, Jake, uh, you know, with players playing in all sorts of competitions and finally getting back together and, and finishing off the Super Smash here. Um, some players are getting some great form as such. But uh, there is now, um, you've got a T20 today, uh, the transi- uh, transition to 50 over cricket, which you haven't really played a lot of. Uh, what are the issues surrounding that from your point of view? Yeah, and it, that is obviously an issue and but something we couldn't get around with the way that the season was scheduled um and something we have discussed where we do have that 2020 international today and we want to 100 percent absolutely win that fixture but again knowing that we have five odis and then however many there is you know how far we go in the world cup the focus has been on 50 over cricket so in our camps we had well coming out of uh, england and the uk last year you know, a lot of our focus for those camps, we had a couple in November, one December, one in January in Nelson was was around. We, we basically scrapped the idea of nets and we were just having intra-squad games or um, simulation practices in an open wickets. And it was all about 50 over stuff. So batters about, you know, mm. batting time as long as they could. Finding that tempo of that, you know, understanding that you don't have to go out there and thrash it at 8, 9, 10 and over like you might want to do in 2020 cricket. Um, if you want to bat for 150 balls, then... You potentially have time, so um, it's just finding that that different rhythm to the game. Um, I would like to think that, especially within our batting unit, we are experienced enough to make that switch. Um, mm. But obviously, it's one thing knowing that, and it's another thing doing that. Sure, uh, you're you're charged with uh, the bowling side of things, of course. Now um, you, you've come up with your final combinations, both uh, in pace and in spin. Let's start with the. Uh, the pace attack based around uh, the experience of Leah Tahuhu, of course, uh, Hayley Jensen, Jess Kurick. Tell us, tell us a wee bit about uh, what you're expecting from them, hopefully in New Zealand conditions. Well, what, what we've seen already here in Queenstown for these, the ODIs against India, there's, there's, thankfully there's a little bit of grass. I mean, actually the weather is a little bit, uh, a little bit overcast today. We've had a shower already. I don't know, there's more forecasts. So if that weather stays the same, it might be conducive to some good seam bowling. But... We, you know, the way the female game is played is that it's not necessarily about pace and bounce and um, intimidation like we see a lot in, in the men's game. Um, and that is what it is, and that's just a given. Um, but uh, the focus for us is well and truly on accuracy and consistency with that, which, to be fair, applies to the men's game as well. But there's different ways to mm. skin the cat, and this is the way we're approaching it. We still have, don't get me wrong, the ability to bowl a bouncer and to get the batter on the back foot, but we just try and preach as much as we can around the accuracy and if we can build up dot balls and find pressure through that, then that's going to lead to wickets itself. But um, you know, we have the bowlers to do it. They've all shown it at different times. It's just a matter of doing it when the pressure's on the most. Well, when you named your team, uh, one of the big uh, areas that we found coming into our show, the techs, etc., were about the uh, omission of uh, Lee Casper. It must have been a, a dreadfully difficult decision for uh, your selection group to make, but you've replaced her with the fresh uh, face in the team, Fran Jonas, just 17 years of age, uh, as opposed to the Casper ex- uh, experience. So, tough decision, uh, I-, I guess, from a bowling point of view. We would ask why. Uh, look, I mean, I'm not a formal selector. I mean, obviously, Bob Carter, the head coach, will, will ask for an opinion from myself and Rob Nicholl, who's the other assistant. Uh, but Emily Drum, Jason Wells and, and Bob are the formal selectors. But... You know, I know what was discussed and what I've seen in the media already since the announcement and the launch last week was around the balance of the side. And, and Lee has been a very consistent performer for the White Ferns over the last well, number of years, really. And she did OK in the UK last year. Um, but the important thing tonight was that the three spinners chosen were actually 
unavailable for the UK last year. So um, that's something to take into consideration. I mean, the fact that Amelia Kerr is one of the best leg spinners or all-rounders in the world, I mean, she's a given. Frankie Mackay, I know that the selectors really rate her genuine off-spinning ability, and, and it's quite a classical off-spinning nature in the way she goes about her work. And then I suppose with Fran Jonas, you've got a left armour, and that's what it kind of comes down to, is that I know she's young and, and she's relatively inexperienced, but I think in all cricket, men's and women's, but also for some reason, specifically in the female game, we, we see left arm spin absolutely dominate. And I think of Jess Jonathan from Australia and Sophie Eccleston from from England, who are probably the two best in the world. And I think if we can get Fran Jonas hitting those the good areas we know she can, just with that angle and the ability to straighten it past the right-hander, um, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the purpose for that nod ahead of Lee. Uh, one of the encouraging things is, uh, as you well know, when uh, World Cups roll around, you you need your big guns, you need your experienced players in uh, reasonable touch heading in. And it just seems, if you look at uh, the scoring across the board in T20 cricket, basically, uh, it's coming together quite nicely, particularly uh, in the batting side of things. Yeah, look, we uh, the thing with, I mean, we just talked about... Um, Fran Jonas before and how young she is. I mean, we've got, you know, Mealy Kerr's only 21 uh, as well. And we've probably mm. got, you know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking we've got three or four others who are probably under that 23, 24 mark. So we are, I suppose, relatively young. But then you balance that out with some absolute experience with, you mentioned Leah Tahuhu before, Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, Katie Martin, um, who had her birthday a couple of days ago. I won't tell you how old she turned then. Uh, she wouldn't want that. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and and there's a couple others as well. So we've got a good mix of youth and experience, and that probably comes out a lot with teams that are selected. But we're going to win this World Cup based on that experience. And actually, I was talking about it last night with one of the other sports staff members and going through the squad and how people have trained since we've been here since, since Saturday. And, you know, we can't... Fran Jones, we can't expect her to win us the World Cup. I want her to perform, don't get me wrong. Hayley Jensen, Hannah Rowe, Rose Ramir, Lauren Down, Brooke Halliday love them to do well, want them to do well. But we're going to win this World Cup if Susie Bates and Sophie Devine and Leah Tuhu and Amy Sathway and Katie Martin and these people, if they perform, we will win and we will do very well. And I think that's the responsibility that comes with playing cricket and being selected for such a long period of time is that you are expected and you are needed to stand up in those pressure times and the World Cup's no bigger stage. One of the great uh, things at the moment is you're uh, able to keep an eye on what's uh, happening in women's cricket uh, in other parts of the world, particularly Australia and uh, England. What have, what have you made of, of those two sides as you've looked on? Uh, are they vulnerable? Uh, do you feel as if uh, Australia are beatable? Yeah, you're right, and that's the great thing about female game at the moment is that there's, I mean, it's just non-stop, um, like the whole cricket calendar, and the ability to watch a lot of series and games and tournaments around the world really helps us with our own planning and scouting. Uh, but watching that series, I mean, I watched the third ODI yesterday and it it almost felt like a fait accompli once the game started rolling along. But um, I think it does two things. It shows that England maybe haven't set it on their final 11, um, but it also shows probably more so how, how deep that Australian side is. Um, and I mentioned before about our senior players you know, that Australian team, their senior players stand up more often than not, and that's what we need from our, from, from our players. You know, the likes of Meg Lanning, Elise Perry, Alyssa Healy, Megan Shute, Jess Johnson, who I mentioned before, they do turn in performances day in, day out, and that's what we need. Um, it does not mean they are unbeatable. Um, and in fact, last year, the, uh, 
one of the good we have not had a good record lately with the white ferns and we can't hide from that but one of the good things about that is pretty much for the last two years all we have played is england and australia and that's given us a good marker to test ourselves against the mm. two best um and i think we show we have shown glimpses that even though we won't end up with very many wins under our belt against him we have shown improvement and the best thing is from a coaching point of view we've identified areas that we can attack but i mentioned before about you know, talking about stuff and doing stuff is very different. I think that's the hard thing is that we can relay that information on weaknesses to the players and the team. The ability to go and execute that is up to them, and that's the tough part. Jake, uh, there's nothing like winning to build confidence, as you say, and uh, that would be a great thing going into this World Cup. So uh, how important then um, the results in the series against India, and how do you rate India? I mean, I, I think they're a bit of a smoky. They've developed quite nicely along the way in the last two to three years. Oh, I agree with you 100%, Smithy. They, I would say in the last five or six years, they have the good old sleeping giant comes to mind and the, and, and the BCCI probably started investing their massive resources behind them and I think you're seeing them really go from strength to strength and they will be tough. They were here a couple of years ago and they defeated us in the in the twenty no the one days and we beat them in the twenty twenties. Um, they then went in you know they've been in the last two finals of the World Cups fifty over in twenty twenty. So so they are going as I say strength to strength. They've you know they have now a female IPL although it hasn't been played during COVID times. So um, they are very good. And when you've got so many people in your country and the resources that the BCCI have, then you're going to have depth, and that's what they're creating. So this will be a very tough series. This really well, and I think they're up there in the conversation. You know, with South Africa as well, about those and ourselves, the White Ferns, to, to, to push Australia and, and potentially England as well. So um, it's a good thing for the world game to have just more and more teams that are at that competitive level. Uh, Jake, just finally, one of the great advantages, of course, of playing at home is crowds, atmosphere. Uh, what are you hearing? Are you hearing anything from uh, the governing bodies yet about the possibility of pockets of crowds at games to, to help our girls out? I would love to say yes and you know they you know i have heard and people will be allowed but honestly smithy have not and all i know so far is pretty much what's in front of us with the indian series and and you know that's day by day week by week you know and at the moment they're, they're closed doors games um and so we you know it, it really sucks what is happening with COVID. but obviously mm-hmm. you know this is not the only event and series being affected and it's just an unfortunate part of the world at the moment but not quite sure about the World Cup. I, I hope so. Even if it's pockets of 100 times by 10 and we get 1,000 people in cheering for New Zealand, I mean, that would be great. But let's see what unfolds. And hopefully if, if our country does the right thing and we're safe and we remain healthy, then, then potentially things can open up. But, um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see there. Well, mate, uh, eyes are upon you. What a, a wonderful occasion for the girls regardless. And... Uh, uh, we just hope it goes well, particularly the the next uh, two uh, two or three weeks of preparation. Uh, hope that bowling unit uh, is uh, nice and tight for you, mate. So all the best. Uh, thanks very much for your time this morning. Good luck today and in this series coming up. Thanks, Smithy. Appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. Jake Oram there, of course, uh, former Black Cat, but his role at the moment is to uh, look after the bowling unit for the White Ferns in uh, the World Cup. Uh, he'll do a good job too. Uh, very good player, of course, as well, but uh, a good coach. Uh, and they'll have good advice going into this series, uh, along with Rob Nicol looking after the batting, of course, head coach uh, Bob Carter. So uh, they picked their squad, and now it's down to business. Uh, they all know what they've got to do here at home uh, to meet expectations. Tough, but a lot of fun along the way.
Uh, it is 9.23 here on SENZ. Subject for the day, I think uh, an appropriate one, who should be the boss in a sports team? Who do you reckon should be the boss in a sports team? Should it be the coach? Uh, the coaches seem to be the one that gets sacked the most, don't they? Uh, if you look across the board, they're the ones that suffer if the results aren't there. And even if the results are there, you can still get sacked. Just ask Justin Langer. So who should be the boss uh, in a sports team? Uh, he can't play the game on their behalf, but he is charged with the responsibility of the strategizing, the selecting, etc. Uh, so uh, is he, in fact, the man in charge, or should it just be the captain? I love your thoughts on that. Double eight, double three. Yeah, updates from the Premier League. Matches going on as we speak, uh, just approaching half-time in the first two games. So it's Newcastle 1, Everton 1, uh, West Ham 0, Watford 0, and in the other game involving Manchester United and Burnley, United are ahead 1-0 after 28 minutes. So the updates from uh, the all-important EPL, particularly for teams like Watford and Burnley, uh, crucial games, and Newcastle too, of course, uh, with Chris Wood playing. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's nine, uh, as I said, just coming up to 9.30. Uh, yeah, those thoughts. I mean, it's different, isn't it, with uh, the All Blacks because uh, we perceive as the, the coach, Steve Hansen, Ian Fosters, etc., uh, the bosses, but are they? Are they the bosses? I um, mean, uh, would you say Richie McCall wasn't the boss? Uh, uh, of the All Blacks. Would you say that uh, Kieran Reid wasn't the boss of the All Blacks? Uh, the problem at the moment is we just quite don't know who the All Black captain is, so therefore Ian Foster probably has to be the boss. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on those matters? Double eight, double three. Um, and uh, we'll take a, a quick news break uh, with, um, uh, I think, Wes Clark. Yeah, Wes Clark coming in. Uh, he's the coach of the Hurricanes Power. Uh, that's the uh, super or picky team that have... Uh, really uh, looking to get uh, their season underway. So uh, Wes uh, will have some information, hopefully, about uh, the prospected start of that competition. Uh, maybe they've been told behind the scenes exactly when to prepare for. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, 9.30, here's Emma. Well, it's less than a month until Super Rugby or Picky is set to kick off and the Hurricanes announced the name of their team earlier this week. They'll be known as the Hurricanes Poor and their coach, uh, Wes Clark, is uh, with us now. Uh, Wes, uh, good morning to you. Uh, you are part of a big group, group that came up with the name. Can you tell us uh, a wee bit about the process and the name itself? Um, yeah. Hi, good morning. Um, firstly, the process was... was quite an exhaustive one and I really have to give credit to Luke Rowe here who currently works as the, the psychologist for the, the Hurricanes men's team but took a real lead in this process um, uh, talking to a lot of people a lot of iwi around the place um, uh, and, and really doing all the background work that I suppose um, has gone into the name itself uh, the name has got a um, it's got a it's got a few me- uh, meanings behind it um, essentially the short story is that it's basically the four wins, so um, the, it's, it's part of the Māori creation story. Um, Huru Te Arangi um, was a female deity in, in the Māori creation story, and she gifted her four children to be the pillars that hold um, you know, the sky from the earth, and those four pillars are essentially the four winds. So the word po itself essentially means four pillars. Um, it links with our, the width of our region. It links with the a female deity and links with, uh, I suppose, the winds of a hurricane and the four winds blowing into the hurricane and, and strengthening the hurricane. It links to Pacifica. Um, the word po is um, used all across Pacifica as in meaning pillars or posts. Um, but the word poa itself is actually also a verb and it's, it's actually unique to the 
Te Ati Awa tribe, which is uh, in Wellington. And what's interesting about the word is also that it's, when it's a verb, it actually means um, to get ready or to prepare. And it's very similar to in the All Black Haka, where they'll say Kia at the start of the Haka. Um, it means to prepare. And in the Hurricanes Mend Haka, they actually use the word Poa instead of Kia So it gives us a nice link to our men's team as well. And um, it also reminded us to be ready for this new competition as, as we look forward to it. Well, it's, it's really it's, it's quite deep and uh, quite deep and meaningful. And, and I would imagine um, everyone's really got in behind it very quickly then. Yeah, the, the, the players have absolutely loved it. We've got, um, you know, a wide range of um, people from the Pacific in our, in our team. So um, they've all grabbed it. Um, we've, we've played around with it at our first camp and you know, the girls did some skits around it, but it also ties in nicely with our theming for our campaign and, and you know, what our four po will be and how that, how that strengthens our hurricanes as we go forward in this competition. So, yeah, it's quite deep. I've, I've tried giving you the... The shortened version, um, but a lot of work yeah. has gone into the background of, of, of deciding on this name. No, sounds great. Absolutely fantastic, Wes. Uh, from the playing perspective, then, uh, how long have you managed to have the squad together for? So uh, we've had an uh, initial camp on the 29th of January, so currently all the teams only meet for two-day camps. So ours was on the 29th of January. That was a, a connection camp explaining the name. Uh, getting players to get to know each other. We've got players from all over New Zealand in the Hurricanes. So, you know, we've got a girl in Northland, one in Dunedin, uh, players in Waikato, Taranaki, etc., all coming into this region. So it was really important at that camp just to get everyone connected and getting to know each other and giving them a real sense of belonging, um, making sure that when they go home they feel like they're part of something special and that, that they belong there. And so our next camp will be this weekend coming, which is a Saturday and Sunday game, which will be in, in Wellington. So at the moment we're camp-based, and then once the campaign starts, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll um, get together on Thursdays before our Saturday games. So Wes, at this stage, have you been uh, told of a, a start date uh, for the competition? Have you, you know, used something on top of the whiteboard to say this is what we're aiming for? The current understanding is um, our first game will be the weekend of the 6th of March, I think it is. Um, and that will be against Mata 2 and Christchurch. Okay, right, so that's something you definitely got to aim for. You talked about bringing the squad together and, and they're coming from uh, all reaches, uh, particularly uh, of the North Island. Are you going to have to have leaders and setting anything, anything up? You need leaders within a group and uh, certainly uh, you've got the fantastic Sarah Hirony on board. Uh, that must be huge in your planning. Yeah, I mean, I've known Gossie for years. Um, she's, she's a pretty special human being as well as a special athlete, so... She's definitely played a part in our leadership group, but we've actually got a range of good leaders. Um, uh, you know, uh, Sarah's sister, Rachel Rakato, is in our team, and she's been captaining the Manawatu team. Uh, you know, similar personalities, similar um, leadership skills. We've got Salika Winiata, who's captain Manawatu for years. Um, again, a, a big leader in this region. And then Jackie Patiafariti, who's captained uh, Wellington for, you know, five or six years now. So. We've actually got a, a good group of leaders. Um, but yes, as, you, as you've mentioned, Gossie, um, pretty special individual, and it's been great seeing her at the first camp um, go from at the start of the weekend, you know, the young girls sort of looking at her in awe and, and just how she brings the group together, and then by the end of the camp, you know, everyone uh, being on the same level and, and really connected with each other. So she's got some special attributes. We're talking to Wes Clark, who's the coach of the Hurricanes and uh, of course the new name is uh, fantastic, we've heard about the background and just finding out a wee bit 
uh, more about the squad and uh, you uh, you know them pretty well. I mean, where you've been with the the Black Ferns uh, for uh, coming up seven years now, so uh, you know most of these girls pretty well. Yes, I've, I've been fortunate enough, and even in this region, to coach a number of these players as I've, I suppose, coached through the years, the Manawatu Women's Sevens team, the Cyclones. Um, there's actually been uh, a regional Sevens team back in 2014, I think. We used to call ourselves uh, the Corfice, so a number of players played in that. Um, See, so, you know, I know a number of these girls really well, and it's part of the reason for wanting to do this job is really keen to give back to this region and really feel connected to the players in this region. Wes, you talked about the fact that you they, they, you bring them together, you have the training, and then you have your match, and then you, you send them away again, etc. Um, you, you've got an interesting mix because you have you, you've got full time professionals and, and and girls that work for a living, etc., playing the game. So, I mean, it's it's it's, it's sort of old style, isn't it, in that regard? Um, so, how, how does it all blend together? Um, I mean. The Hurricanes team is actually slightly different to most teams. We've only got Sarah Hirini, who is a full-time professional, and Shay Robbins-Fippi, and Ashley Tina. So we've actually only got three. Um, some of the other teams have as many as seven teams, so there's a bit of a challenge there for us in, in making sure that we we're able to train as, as well as they are able to prepare. Um, but at the moment, it's gone really well. It's obviously using technology, so... Uh, soon have come on board and the players all have GPS watches so there's the ability to monitor the, the loads that they're doing during the week training wise, they're all on apps uh, we had a Zoom call just two nights ago with all the players to make sure everyone's across the game plan uh, within those calls we have um, you know breakout rooms where forwards and backs um, separate etc so it's, we, we've tried to connect as much as we can and we're fortunate um, even though it's, it seems old school um, with the new technology around uh, it's actually quite manageable. Oh, that's good news. Absolutely good news. Can we put your uh, new New Zealand hat on for uh, just a second, bearing in mind what you've got coming up? I mean, this uh, Super Rugby or Picky, uh, all of a sudden, Wes, has got huge significance from, uh, I guess, a, a selectorial point of view, an incentive point of view for the girls as well. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it's actually had a massive impact already, just seeing players... Um, Firstly, the banter online between players. Um, secondly, seeing how players have come into the first camp of the year, um, knowing that we don't have you know, test matches till end of May, June. Typically, there's a lead-in time, but players have come in fitter than ever because they're all excited about Opiki. Um, it's been great to see players um, have, have a renewed focus. You know, Our first camp was, I think, the second week of January. So you see them come in and, and great nick, really keen to play. It's, it's been wonderful so far, and we'll have a flow-on effect of the Blackburns already and then the second part of that of course is uh, it's no secret that the Blackfins uh, were a bit underdone going to England and France last year in terms of playing time and, and playing high level rugby so you know, this competition gives us a chance to get our best players playing uh, some intense rugby um, with some of the other best players in the country and preparing us better for bridging the gap between the Farah Palmer Cup and international rugby so that's going to be huge um, and, and I suppose lastly, like you said, there's, there's a massive opportunity for selection here. So it's a World Cup year. We're interested in picking the best players. And even though some players have contracts, there's still, uh, you know, open spots in the Black Fern. So it's really up to, up to those who want to grab the opportunity to grab it. Where's that World Cup is going to roll around very quickly, as you well know. It'll, you'll just uh, blink one day and it'll, it'll be here. So 
uh, planning and that has to be quite well advanced. So what stage uh, are the Black Ferns uh, management group, etc.? Have you outlined your structure going forward post-Super uh, Rugby Picky? We haven't outlined it yet. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of work going on in the background. It's interesting for someone like me who's doing that on this side and then also um, doing the Hurricanes, but I can assure you there's, we're looking at all sorts. We're looking at um, game plan, um, theme, um, you know, staff, uh, roles and responsibilities. Everything's getting really well reviewed at the moment to make sure that when we, the Black Ferns will hit the ground running in April post-Opiki, that it's a well-oiled machine and that we can uh, make, you know, take the best advantage of the six months heading into the World Cup uh, from then on. At the moment, there's still connections with players, so all our contracted players still get one-on-one. They've got individual plans, etc. We're just working on a document that will go out in the next couple of days around you know, skills that we want them to practice, even through Opiki. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment to make sure that we grab this opportunity. Having a World Cup at home is pretty special, so... Um, even, though we, even though we haven't really outlined it or made it public yet, um, we're pretty close and it's pretty special. Hugely exciting, Wes. Hugely exciting time for uh, women's rugby. Great year for women's sport in this country. Uh, and you guys uh, and girls are going to be uh, so much a focus on it. Look forward to that uh, start date on uh, 6th of March. Uh, not that far away, about uh, just less than a month. So ho- hope it goes well for you, man. Um, and this uh, first hit out in uh, OPIC is... Uh, the success that everyone wants, uh, everyone wants it to be. Good luck, Wes, and thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, Wes Clark there, uh, coach of the Hurricanes Power, heavily involved too with um, the uh, Black Ferns. Uh, he's got a massive year, hasn't he, um, uh, getting all these things together. Uh, but as I said, it's, it's a huge year for, for women's sport in this country, and that will be a massive focus come the end of it. I, I think it's the rugby highlight, personally. Uh, of uh, this 2022 year. I know it's huge for the All Blacks as well as they prepare for the World Cup next year, a defining year for a lot of All Blacks personnel. Uh, but this is the year uh, for the Black Ferns, a number of experienced players within that group uh, looking to find some form after that uh, tour of uh, England and France, uh, looking to cement their places in there. Some are professional rugby players, some are not. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see how it's developing and unfolding very, very quickly. 9.44 here on SENZ. Uh, we'll be back shortly with uh, a couple of texts and a multi before 10 o'clock. Behind the stumps to behind the mic, you're in safe hands. It's mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Well, Jeff, the ref has come in and said some referees like to think they are the boss and want to be number one on the paddock instead of being number 31 on the paddock. I think that's right, Jeff. I watched uh, the last 20 minutes and uh, record of England versus Scotland. Uh, ben O'Keefe had a very fine game, got some wonderful comments too from the, uh, the commentators, etc., on his control of the game and his manner and his relaxed uh, way that he handled the most situations. Probably was a penalty try. Probably was a penalty try, but uh, I suppose the Scottish winger would have caught that ball. I, I guess you have to assume that he would have um, if the English uh, hooker hadn't have uh, palmed it out. So I think he handled that pretty well, but it did take forever, and it was just a stark sort of reminder uh, Jeff, of, um, for me anyway, of what we've got coming up this year. And, and whilst we look forward to the rugby there, it's going to be a slow-paced game under the way it's being uh, refereed at the moment and uh, the TMO's continued involvement. We're going to be looking at some very, very long games of rugby and long periods within games without any activity at all. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, another text that has come in. Hey, Smithy, it has to be the coach who's the boss. Too many times do we see players out of form and different codes taking up a spot in the team because they are captain. K 
current example is Owen Farrell, nowhere near good enough on form, but is selected as he is captain. The coach selects the team, makes the game plan, lays the plan with the board of their, of their code. I highly doubt that Kane Williamson sits on the board meeting with NZC when Gary Stead lays out his four-year plan. Uh, absolutely right. Uh, he would not be there, uh, but uh, Gary Stead, um, yeah, he did. He, he would set it out. There's a number of candidates go for head coaches' jobs, uh, and uh, clearly it's so uh, you've got the leg in and if you're the incumbent and your uh, position is, um, is quite strong if you've done well, uh, or is it? That's the thing. Uh, ask Justin Langer in that regard, and that's what's uh, prompted this subject today. Who is actually in charge here? Now, John, you've come through with a bit of news about Pat Cummins today. Yeah, well, there's been so much said, hasn't there, about um, it was Cummins against Langer, essentially, is what we're reading between the lines here, and we haven't heard anything from Pat Cummins. Uh, So he's going to front up across the ditch today, we are told. Uh, That should be very interesting later on today, Smithy, with what Pat Cummins has to say about Justin Langer and their relationship, which obviously broke down at some point. Well, he... The thing about it, he won't he won't lambast him uh, publicly. He he will not really uh, take him to task. I would uh, imagine, uh, but we might get the truth as to why uh, he felt that there was a need for the change. We should, if he's going to front up the press conference, well, he should actually say why he felt because, um, and he obviously did because he w- he refused to endorse Langer publicly at the time. He refused to answer positively about Langer's performance and his uh, continued role uh, with the side. Yeah. So clearly he was against it. Clearly he, he was against it. Uh, we'd like to hear why. That, that's all he has to do. Yep. Uh, and if he can justify it really, really well, uh, this will die a very quick death. If he doesn't, it's a big press conference. If he doesn't, it ain't going anywhere. 9.53 here on SENZ. Voice of sport in New Zealand. Nothing gets past Smithy. It's mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. You got to know when the hold Smithy's multi. Know when to walk away and know when to run. Bet live on your favourite sports. Download the TAB app today. Well, yesterday's multi is still going uh, because uh, West Ham and Watford are, are going. They're uh, still at it after 56 minutes. It's nil all there. Uh, and Manchester United still lead Burnley 1 0. Uh, and in the other game, in case you're interested, it's 1 1 between Newcastle and Everton. Uh, but Miami won yesterday, Phoenix won yesterday, so we're just waiting now for West Ham to get a goal against Watford, and that would get us home with a $4.06 multi today. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks to beat the Lakers. Uh, there's a team that have got too many bosses. The Lakers, they can't get it right, can they? So they'll get beaten today at a buck fifty-nine. Uh, Spurs to beat Southampton tomorrow morning, first thing, Premier League game, $1.53. Uh, the New Zealand women to beat India today in their T20 International, it's a buck seventy. I think they've some great form. Uh, the White Ferns, so I think uh, they're a big chance while India get acclimatised. Uh, and tonight, I've sort of gone um, head over heart. Melbourne victory to beat the Phoenix at $2.10. Melbourne, a very good side. Phoenix need consistency. Found a win last uh, time out. Uh, need to do it again, but I kind of think Melbourne might be a bit tougher than... Uh, that's an $8.68 return. I think it's uh, a reasonably good chance. Uh, and Michael, I understand the weather's not too bad in Queenstown, uh, thanks to your text. Uh, for this game today between the White Ferns and India. Uh, After the break, we're going to be talking to uh, former All Black Sky pundit James Parsons on a number of rugby issues. Uh, What did he make of the Blues first time up? Uh, Moana Pacifica, exactly, uh, and uh, other things that uh, come to mind as well. Um, Yeah, I I can't get over this this story. Um, 
between these two Chinese women athletes. One up front, one supposed to be in hiding or uh, even has disappeared off the face of the earth and all of a sudden, when one wins a gold medal, the other, ironically, is standing right behind her, right behind her with the biggest smile on her face, talking to the boss of the Olympics. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on ECNZ. Well, the six New Zealand-based Super Rugby teams are now in Queenstown getting ready for the new season to kick off uh, next weekend and to take a look at the teams and the unique situation they find themselves in is... Gee, has this guy got some titles? Former All Blacks hooker, former Blues captain, New Zealand Rugby Players Association Player Services Manager and Sky Sport commentator James Parsons. Welcome in. How's it going, Smithy? Good to be on. Yeah, good on you, mate. Hey, first of all, from... Uh, the Players Association uh, point of view. Tell us about your role there. Uh, yeah, I basically just head up the player service department, so anything involving the players, pretty much, it's, it's fairly broad, but a lot of competition structures, um, making sure that we're, we're adhering and others are adhering to the collective agreement, and um, sort of like misconducts or any other sort of things that come up. Okay, so um, yeah, that, that is quite a wide, encompassing uh, gig you've got there. Which I guess includes uh, player welfare and, and the way they are um, adapting to certain circumstances. In my word, in this world today, we have to do that. So, how uh, what's the uh, initial feedback as they settle into Queenstown on on uh, what's coming up for them? Oh, look, I won't um, beat around the bush. It was uh, obviously hard um, to hear, especially for some of those All Blacks had 15 weeks straight. But balancing up, um, you know, with the rugby calendar. There's not a lot of spare weeks, as you'd know, um, and you know, we really want to get this competition played. So we had to balance up um, player welfare and uh, the competition going ahead, and that's why I suppose we've capped it at four weeks. And then, and then by that stage, we're hoping uh, that the contract definition has changed, which is which allows us to play with a little bit of freedom for Super Rugby Pacific, but as well as that OPC. So, uh, James, when you, when you look at how some of the All Blacks are going to be uh, working their way back into competitive uh, rugby, uh, is that an individual thing or is it done in conjunction with uh, the All Black coaching staff, etc.? Oh, the, the All Black um, S&C staff and coaches will be across their plan, but most of their plans were sent out uh, before Christmas when they came back from India tour, so they knew what they had to do over the break and then obviously uh, knew what targets they had hit coming to Super Rugby and now they're in the Super Rugby environment so those sort of coaching staffs and SNC staff will take over in their progression I suppose their contact progression is the biggest thing at this time of the year so that they can hit the ground running. Well most of the senior guys uh, involved in uh, the competition will have experienced some form of bubble life I guess uh, but uh, what about the younger guys what, what are they actually able to do in the setup they've got in their franchises down in Queenstown? I'm talking socially here or away from rugby can they do I mean can they go to golf for instance or anything like that? Yeah, look, um, you know, we're working through some options with tourism Queenstown at the moment and then we've put a committee together that involves uh, one player and manager from each team so that, um, you know, we can sort of survey those options and make a decision if, if they're safe uh, enough to keep the bubble tight. Uh, but the, the likelihood, just like the All Blacks, it'll run similar to the All Blacks into your tour when they got to go out and play golf and uh, do other sort of activities. So we're just working through that now, but certainly um, golf is high on the agenda. It was one of the first questions... I was asked uh, when, when a lot of the lads found out, so it's not a bad place in the world to be playing golf. No, it isn't. Uh, so I think it's a pretty good place to be spending a bit of time. Personally, I wouldn't mind, uh, I can think of a lot worse places in the world to be than uh, Queenstown, James, but 
facility-wise, I mean, you've obviously put a lot of work in behind the scenes, and this was not just an overnight decision to base yourself there. Um, how, how's the mix going to be with uh, the other facilities off the golf course, the gyms, the training fields, etc.? Yeah, look, that's been a massive um, piece of work, and obviously worked with um, the, the Queenstown Mayor Jim Bolton. Ended our team headed by Cam Good and um, Karen Rasmussen have, have been you know working overtime around the clock to make sure that every team has access to a gym, a training field away from each other, so that they can prepare in a real tight, focused manner. Um, so they can sort of get this preseason two done and then hit the ground running for round one. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy, but uh, we managed to do it, which is great. Going to be some big days out, uh, bus trips uh, to Dunedin um, and then bus trips home from Dunedin. Uh, you're probably looking at the thick end of around eight hours on a bus plus a game of rugby, so uh, they're going to have to be patient. Yeah, they are, um, but there was a lot of feedback we got from the players. They really wanted to play at Forsyth Bar, um, obviously under the roof. Uh, it's a little bit wider, so as we know, Super Rugby um, likes to use the width of the field and, and play that expansive brand. So um, that was that was a big push, I suppose, from players and coaches because um, they've been working away and they've got all their plans set. Uh, so clearly, most of them want to use the width. Okay, now once the month is up, all going well. Um, perhaps the competition will take a, a, a different look. Um, and would the players be open to moving to Australia? Do you think, have you had those discussions uh, about completing the comp uh, as it was originally oh, set out? I've definitely been asked by a number of players and, and obviously they, they don't want to be spending a year um, in bubbles, but what I said to them is we can only work with what's in front of us now. Um, it's an ever-changing environment, or I suppose, that we live in with the government. We know that once we're at phase three under the government regulations, that close contact definition goes to household only, so it won't shut teams down or businesses down. You know, everyone's um, sort of playing by the same rule book, uh, no matter what sort of area you're in. So at this stage, um, you know, we can't rule it out. And, and I've been honest with the players about that. It's, it's certainly not ruled out, but it, it certainly would be, um, you know, considered against the player welfare and that cumulative load and how we can manage potentially some players around that. Um, I don't know what it looks like, but we're certainly aware that 15 weeks on the road, another four in Queenstown, um, All Blacks have got a big year as well. Uh, we've got to get the balance right so that these players don't burn out and um, they get some family time because a lot of them, a lot of their motivations and the reasons why they go out there and put their bodies on the line is their families back home. So uh, we're, we're certainly across all sort of levers and, and we've just got to work our way through that. Uh, James, there's a, a new component into the competition as, as well this year, Moana Pacifica, obviously, and uh, you talk about culture and family and that sort of thing. That's, uh, that's huge to their unit. Uh, I, I just want to, are they under your wing as well, uh, Moana Pacifica? Do you look after all their welfare, etc.? cetera? Uh, some of them, of course, uh, are New Zealand contractor players. Uh, are they uh, under your wing as well? I think if you look at most of them, they're NPC players, so that certainly comes under um, my banner, but um, I'm working really closely with Hale Tipoli, um, who's the, the head of um, Pacific Players Association. So he's across it more of the day-to-day -day stuff and where I can help out and where he needs uh, me to jump in, um, I do so. Okay, let's, uh, uh, if we could, just put your, your commentary hat on as well and uh, I would imagine you kept uh, as close a eye as you can on those build-up games over the weekend. We'll stay with Moana Pacifica. It was a, a tough first hit-up for them. Uh, I think the first signs were quite encouraging. They maybe ran out of gas a wee bit towards the end against the Chiefs. So um, it's 61-7 on the scorecard. Take much notice of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
obviously parked up, you know, like Smithy, watch any game that's on TV, so um, parked up, watched that, and um, I, I thought um, initially, for the amount of ball they had, their defence was really solid and sound. They, they weren't over committing to breakdowns, they were spreading the field, and I thought Levi Almour was exceptionally good at bringing that line speed on that edge to, to shut off those Chiefs options early. Um, but as you said, I mean, when you're making that amount of tackles, um, and, and, you know, obviously the Chiefs bringing fresh legs on, um, it, it did, did wear them out towards the end, but I definitely think for a first hit out for the new team, new um, structures and styles, I think they could be happy with what they saw. But um, I think the biggest area uh, they'll be working on is, is that set piece, obviously winning the ball first and then their ability to strike and, and build some phases to sort of get teams going on that back foot so they can you know, spread it to the width and the, and the exciting flair they have out there. So there's a real uh, impressive look, uh, I think, about the Blues. There's been a lot of hype around uh, Roger Tuivasa Shek, of course, James. Uh, and sometimes that can detract away from the core work of the Blues. Uh, they're missing a couple of, of key players. They had a couple of injuries at the weekend too, I understand. So uh, I still believe it doesn't matter how much they've got, all that flair and those new names, excitement in the background, uh, they're still going to have to be very, very big up front without Paddy Tuopolotu. Uh, who's going to carry the load for them there? Look, I think bringing a guy like Luke Romano in is massive for us. Um, in terms of that leadership and experience and, and bringing guys like Sam Derry along. Like Sam was massive last year under Paddy's wing, but losing Paddy and, and Jared Kelly to Eddie, it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for, for guys like Josh Goodhue to really stamp their mark in their super rugby career. Um, and you know Sam Derry's just going to get better and better. And I think that tight five will be crucial, but there's some great competition. Hooker with Ricky joining the squad and Kurt, um, obviously captain on the weekend. So... That's always a, a feisty battle in that hooker spot. We've, we've got a number of um, all-black props, um, so that, that key work will need to be done, and, and there's no doubting Tom Coventry will be across that. And I think any loose forward trio that's got to pick between three all-blacks and Tom Robinson is, is going to be um, you know, hard, hard going. But as we know, that it's, it's the depth in these squads that matter. You, know, you look at the Crusaders and the successes. When they bring a player in, um, you, know, you don't notice too much difference, and they still get away with wins. So... Uh, that first up 23, I think, is, is really strong. But, um, you know, it'll be key that those guys in the background, um, you know, keep working hard at training, get to club rugby where they can, um, or, you know, the development footy stuff so that they're ready to go when that opportunity um, provides itself. James, there's been a lot of focus on, on Roger uh, joining the Blues squad uh, initially. Uh, they kept him under wraps. We didn't see him, uh, of course, uh, in the NPC due to... Uh, uh, those circumstances, which was immensely frustrating, uh, frustrating in terms of his development across from one code to the other. But I'm not sure if you've had too much to do with him. But uh, what are you hearing out of his uh, introduction into the Blues backline? Oh, I think it's um, no surprise that um, you know, everyone's talking about his professionalism and, and, and leadership off the field and, and bringing guys like Caleb Clark and. Um, you know, when he links up with Rico, I think, you know, they'll form a great combination and, and you know, when Bodie gets back in there as well. So um, there's a lot to like um, about his professionalism. Um, I think we just need to take the pressure off him a little bit as well. Like, there's a lot of expectation with the player he is. But if you watched him, he moved into the halves a little bit with the Warriors last year and he was really good with ball in hand and distributing out the back and, and finding that space. But the difference there is they're 10 metres back, so he's got a bit more room and time on the ball. Uh, where he'll find, I suppose, at rugby when they get that, defensive line and we know defensive sides like to push the boundary where that line is and, and get up with that line speed um, it would be about him holding his depths rather than sort of taking the ball to the line initially and, and being able to free up the outsides um, and I don't think if there's a move that he has to carry um, I think we all know he'll be pretty effective in that 
Dalton Popoli'i, captain at the age of 24. You've captained the Blues. You know what's involved in the job, bringing uh, a side full of uh, a lot of different cultures together. Uh, what are the strengths of uh, Dalton Popoli'i? Uh, action first, leader, similar to Paddy. Um, will always be, you know, I suppose an average 8 out of 10. You know, he wouldn't ne- never really dip below that in terms of his performance, which helps. Um, he's just an ball of energy, you know, between him and Tom Robinson and, and, and Marcel Renato. I don't know who's got more energy um, Monday to Sunday than those three. So he, he definitely, um, you know, delivers on the paddock, but he's also um, got a good work ethic in terms of his preparation and understanding of the game and the rules and, and also has a really good bond um, with, you know, senior guys all the way through to the new guys. So I, I think he's a great fit. Um, but as we know, like the biggest thing that um, has changed at the Blues over the last sort of four or five years is, is not that reliance on one leader. It, it really has to be spread across the park and um, it's, it's the work of the, I suppose, unseen leaders like, like Rico and um, Harry Plummer and, and guys like that. Um, you know, even adding Luke Romano and when Bodie comes back and we've talked about Roger, all that sort of depth of leadership um, is massive in the support so that Dalton can, one, focus on playing really well first and then um, the decision and tactical stuff, he can be assisted with with some of the game drivers like Bodie. James, uh, Hoskins Satutu has uh, an interesting time in his career, I, I kind of feel. Uh, he's a bloke with undoubted talent, there's no doubt about it. Uh, but perhaps just... Uh, he's at a, a time now, particularly in this World Cup year, where he has to have a, a pretty monstrous type season just to let everyone know of that talent on a consistent basis. Is that fair? Yeah, well, let's not forget he had a lot of injuries last year and there was a little bit stop-start um, in the blue season and you know, didn't get a hell of a lot of opportunity in the All Blacks. But when he did, I thought he performed really well. You know, He is probably one of the best exponents off the back of a scrum, and that's his X-factor is... His skill set is, is second to none. You know, he literally is a triple threat, and, and he has the confidence to to use all three. Um, but you, but you're right. I, I think a big season around his set piece stuff is huge. Like he, he's one of the guys I, I probably in my whole career is one of the easiest guys to throw to between him and Stephen Luatua. The ability for them to get off the ground fast and hardly need their lifters, and you know, uh, pluck the ball out of the air with one hand is is pretty exceptional. So. His core roles are a lot better than people um, probably give him credit for. Uh, and, and then if he can just add um, you know, some of those sort of vicious clean-outs and, and big, strong ball carries that we know he's capable of and, and he's um, you know, got a good set of shoulders on defensively, I, I think he's got the ability to kick on. But it's about staying injury-free and getting consecutive games together. You know, it's like there's no way you can sort of show yourself or get better as a footy player other than you know, out under those bright lights. Year of the Blues for you, the Year of the Blues? Mate, I've, I've been around the Blues long enough to not know to buy into that hype, smoothie, so we'll just keep our heads down and, and chip away. Good on you, James. Absolutely fantastic uh, talking to you this morning. On the background of uh, this competition starting in Queenstown, the players' side of it, uh, players' perspective uh, and the insight into the Blues. Uh, all, all the best, mate. Thank you for your time this morning. Uh, I hope everything goes r- as smoothly as it can in this difficult time. Cheers, smoothie. Go well, mate. Yeah, going well too, James. Uh, James Parsons there, of course, uh, very heavily involved now in player welfare as part of the uh, uh, Players Association. Busy man, uh, there's a lot on his plate. Uh, and, of course, uh, now looking uh, after uh, Moana Pacifica and their interests as well uh, through a lot of their players and their NPC contracts. So, mm, uh, busy job, uh, as well as a, a Sky Pundit too, and an out-and-out Blues man and the Chamberly. It's 10.19 here on SENZ Panel Time next. First time I've spoken to Nikki 
this calendar year and uh, Andrew Gordy. Uh, Andrew Gordy, of course, uh, very famous, both very famous people. Uh, and I, I think I'll begin with you today, uh, uh, Mrs. Styrus, because uh, obviously in, in your vocation, you've had to interview people over the years, you've had to prepare interviews, etc. And every now and then it perhaps doesn't go the way that you plan. And I'm talking here about uh, Zoe sadisky Sinnott, whose dad uh, was interviewed. Sean, lovely guy. We've had on the radio, actually. We got him in the morning. Uh, tele- television got him at night. It was different. <laughs> I was actually at home, Smithy. Happy New Year to you, by the way. Um, I was at home when this, uh, this unfolded, and I was like, my mouth just dropped. I was like, oh no, we've got the F-bombs going left, right and centre. And I, and I, I watched poor Gordon Finlater trying to sort of think, how am I going to deal with this? How am I gonna, and he just sort of tried to ignore it and carry on and it's got worse and worse. And, and then I thought about it afterwards and I thought, what would I have done? Um, because I'd never been in that situation. Andrew, you may have. Um, and I, I thought, you know, would I try and shut him down? Would I just let him go? Would I just say, oh, look, you know, this is great, but can you watch this wearing? I think it's a really, really tricky one because obviously it went viral afterwards and, um, you know, he became famous. But who could blame him? I mean, such fantastic moments, much emotion, and obviously quite a number of drinks on board. Um, so I think ultimately you just got to let him go and then just sort of shut it down and then as Narelle did at the end of you just apologise and say sorry about the language there but obviously just, you know, height of emotion. So, tricky one. Um, and I think News Hub dealt with it pretty well too because instead of trying to ignore it, what they actually ended up doing was uh, embracing it and, you know, taking that publicity and using it in a positive way. Good. So, have you had an experience like that and uh, what did you make of it? I haven't had a, a, uh, an experience exactly like that one. I think the closest I came uh, was, it might have actually been, uh, when was it? It was around the time of the Rugby World Cup, I think. I can recall doing a, a live cross down at, uh, down at the cloud. And I had someone um, simulate fellatio behind me, actually, which was, um, yeah, which was a bit of a strange one. Uh, not one that I was expecting. Um, but there's a great screenshot of that floating around somewhere. Um, so that's about as close as it's, uh, it's got for me. Um, but no, look, in terms of Zoe's dad, um, I, I, it's live TV. Um, and, and one thing I will say, in Gordon's defence, Gordon spoke to Zoe's dad for about 10 minutes before the interview, and there were zero <laughs> indications that, uh, that Sean was going to go off on some kind of uh, foul mouth tirade or anything like that um, and yeah of course he had had a couple of drinks but nowhere near to the point where you thought I'm not sure we should be putting this man on live television so it's just one of those things that happen I think everyone involved with their best to you know sort of make sure it didn't get too out of hand but yeah these, this is live television at the end of the day and um, all you can do sometimes <laughs> is apologise uh, after the event you know Andrew Gordy and uh, Nicky Storis with us Yes, Nikki Storis having a coughing fit behind the scenes, uh, but that's cool. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get by that. Um, life, Nikki Storis, then I'll, I'll ask you this question to really put your cough on the line. Uh, life without Kane Williamson in Test cricket, life, with, life without Ross Taylor, um, and uncertainty about Kane Williamson going forward. That's, I think that's the most worrying thing. No one seems to have an answer as to when and where and how often Kane's going to play anymore. Yeah, it's a really um, it's really unsettling for the for the squad and also obviously for Kane. Um, 
tendon injuries are, I've had a tendon injury before and, and like you say, they're not something that you can just go and have an operation for and suddenly it's fixed. It's, it's something you have to manage and hopefully over time that it just sort of goes away. Um, so yeah, really, really tricky and I guess compounded by the, the retirement of Ross Taylor. So I hope for the sake of the Black Cat uh, test squad, you know, and, and any other test uh, cricket going forward, that, that Kane does come right. And of course, I guess though, they have to imagine life, um, you know, without him and without both of them. Fortunately, you've got a Devon Conway in there who, you know, I guess has, uh, has come to the fore and, you, and yet you do have Young, Latham, Mitchell. So there is, there is quality batsmen coming through the ranks there. Um, interesting, Hamish Rutherford getting a, a recall. Um, mm. I found that one quite odd. I think it was sort of, I thought he may have, uh, you know, done his time, but perhaps, you know, just lack, lack of alternatives, really. Um, so, you know, some depth, but perhaps not enough depth um, sitting there. Um, but, yeah, the, the, I guess the, we can just only hope that, that uh, Kane does come right. And, of course, he's got his IPL contract uh, to fulfil as well. Maybe that, that might miraculously help some sort of recovery. <laughs> Small matter of a couple of million dollars oh. or whatever it is. But, yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> yes, there is the, that. It, there's the cynic coming through and Nicky Storis, everybody. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not being cynic. <laughs> I'm not being cynical. I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, but, it's your livelihood, you know, and that's a lot of money. So you're definitely going to want to go and play, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose you are. I suppose there's uh, every reason to go and earn a couple of million bucks. Gorgeous, isn't there? Sure is. Geez, leopard never changes its spots, does it, eh? So bloody cynical. No, no sorry, but uh, all good, all good. Yeah, a lot, I've got to say, Smithy, and I know you've probably got to get to the news shortly, but um, I'm deeply concerned about this. I'm deeply concerned. I didn't actually fully realise that Kane's been dealing with this issue for, we're talking sort of almost a year and a half now. Um, staggering mm. the time to be dealing with an issue, an issue such as this, and I know it is uh, a niggly type of issue. It's not like something that just, you know, heals in a few months' time with a bit of rest. Um, but that, that is a massive concern. The other huge concern I have, um, Smithy, is in terms of the Black Caps World Test Championship title defence, um, we lost the game that, as, as you've quite rightly mentioned several times on your show, uh, the Black Caps should never have lost that first test to Bangladesh. And now they're heading into uh, a series against the Proteas. Uh, they're going to be missing Kane Williamson, Ross Taylor and Trent Bolt, three absolute pillars of the mm -hmm. team um, for the first test. That's a, a huge concern. And I know that um, you know Gary Stead has managed to build some depth with this side and and we, and we talk about um, some of those players. You mentioned some of them before, Nicky. But, um, you know, I, every, every single team, if you keep taking out some of those pillars, um, it's, it's going to fall over eventually. So I think they're facing a massive, massive test uh, in the series coming up against the Proteus, for sure. Underdogs for me, Andrew. Underdogs for me at this point, anyway, on paper. Uh, it's 10.31, and as you say, it's time for the news. Uh, and here's Emma. Talk, big opinions, the panel. Talk to me, yeah. Nikki Styrus, Andrew Gordy uh, with us this morning as the panel. This is uh, part two. Nikki Styrus, uh, a little um, mention from or a little mention about Reese Walsh, uh, which was a little bit concerning uh, because uh, he hasn't even finished playing for us yet, has he? <laughs> oh, my God, I could see this coming right when they very first signed him, even though it was for, you know, on a four-year contract. And it's the age-old problem for the Warriors, really. Um, you know, they, they either get um, 
you know, a, a star in the making who hasn't maybe made it yet but is going to be, or they get someone in their twilight years who wants to finish off their career and no other Australian team will have them. And that's the problem that the Warriors have. Reese Walsh, you know, they, the Warriors gave him an opportunity, which he grabbed with both hands. But, of course, now he's Australian and he's a star and the Australian teams want him and he wants to go home. So, I, I mean, I just thought this is a matter of time and I guess... How do you deal with it, you know, as a club? And particularly, I think it was, um, was it O'Sullivan that, that recruited him in the first mm. place? And, of course, now he's gone, um, and he's gone to this Dolphins team. So, you know, he's probably saying, you know, Reese, come to us. Um, I think it's a matter of time. I think he'll see out this season, and I think that he will try and jump ship next year when the, when the Warriors potentially come back and play, you know, back at, um, in New Zealand. And I think it's, it's really disappointing, but it's the nature of the beast with the Warriors and what they have to deal with, you know, season after season. And why, I honestly can't see them actually ever winning a championship anytime soon. Because as soon as they try to build a decent squad, recruit and build on that, they lose these top players and, they, and they're back to square one again. Uh, hugely disappointing because I don't think they should be allowed to break these contracts. But NRL contracts seem to be, I don't know, like something you get out of a wheat fix packet. You can seem to be able to break them as much as you like. So I don't know. I don't know. Just a sh- it's a shame. Uh, Andrew Gordy, of course, uh, Winter Olympics. Big story, of course, has been Zoe. Uh, early on, from our point of view, uh, a couple of days where uh, our, struggle, our com, uh, competitors have been really struggling to make uh, playoffs and final situations. But this interesting story developed this morning, or last night actually, when I was watching uh, this uh, beautiful young lady uh, who uh, they're now labelling as the Snow Princess. Um, and uh, she is, of course, uh, uh, an American who uh, actually uh, also now uh, competes for China, and uh, America hate that. Uh, and I'm referring to Eileen Fengu or Gu Eileen. Uh, she wins, and straight behind her uh, is this tennis star who's been missing, presumed almost gone, uh, having to defend herself supposedly against uh, sexual uh, assaults, and uh, everyone's been very worried about her in tennis circles, but now she's sitting next to the Olympic president, Thomas Bach, smiling as happy as you like, sharing the, sharing the limelight. How the heck did they pull that off? Makes you ill, doesn't it? To be perfectly honest, it makes me, it makes me ill. Um, you can, you know, it's easy for uh, well, if any Western journalist, any Western media, can see what's what's going on here, um, and it and it really makes me, yeah, sick to the stomach to read interviews where she's saying, no, I didn't claim sexual assault, and it's all been misunderstood, and. You've got it all wrong. You know, what, how, how, do you, how do you expect anyone to believe that? And it's no coincidence now that China and Beijing is on the world stage hosting one of the biggest events in world sport, that she is essentially being paraded around by the Chinese government. Um, it's, yeah, like I said, I don't know. There's no other word that I can use to describe it. It really does make you sick. And it also makes me sick that the IOC are kind of allowing it. They're enabling the Chinese government to sort of get away with this behaviour by using their event to send a message to the world. Um, yeah, it's, it doesn't leave a good feeling on the inside, to be honest with me. No, we're talking about Peng Shui, of course, uh, uh, Nikki, which was a horrible, horrible story at the time, but uh, all of a sudden, uh, continually these shots beaming in here, uh, and the media must have been 
are au fait with the whole deal. I mean, they're showing these shots all the time, and, and she's sitting alongside the most important man in sport, supposedly, the president of the Olympic Committee. Everything's cool. <laughs> well, you alluded to my uh, cynicism earlier, and I don't want to be um, too controversial <laughs> on the radio, but one, uh, one would wonder what's gone on behind the scenes there. I think, like Andrew, I feel... I feel actually quite sick about it too because you've got to sit there and go, you know, her hand, I believe, has been forced in saying these things. Um, we don't even know how, um, you know, close her safety, you know, how safe has she been? What, you know, what ultimatums were, were the guns of the head? I mean, that's, that's how I feel about it, you know, and now they're, yeah, they're putting on this big display for the world and it's actually really disappointing that the IOC are allowing, like Andrew said, this to happen. But I guess, what do you do? What you know, if she is saying she's okay and it was all a big misunderstanding, then it's a pretty tricky one. And and, and like we've seen around the world with humanitarian crises and you know uh, freedom of speech and all that, countries will behave in the way that they wish. And really, there's very little the rest of the world can or will do about it. And so I guess it's the same for sporting heroes. And 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 it yeah, it's really sad and it's really sick and it makes my blood boil. I think it, it, it's incredible how they've managed to pull it off. It just absolutely staggers me. And it's almost flown under the radar, almost, I say, at this point. We'll wait and see. Um, here's, here's another one uh, tonight, Gord's uh, another important fixture for the Phoenix behind closed doors against Melbourne Victory. Yeah, I, and, and I, I sort of um, I tweeted about this yesterday when that news came through. What's the A-League doing about this? I mean, they, they've got questions to answer here, haven't, haven't they? Um, you know, the, the A-League have, have obviously had the Phoenix relocate to Australia this season. They're playing their entire season uh, in Australia at a, at a home away from home. Then they go and schedule their games on a, on a Wednesday night uh, against Melbourne Victory, obviously. And it's up to the Phoenix to try and find commercial partners away from home, away from their fan base, away from local sponsors who have a vested interest in that fan base and and the local market, they're just on an absolute hiding to nothing. Uh, And it just staggers me that the A-League are supposedly doing nothing to support them in in this instance. Um, How are the the Phoenix supposed to do, you know, how are they supposed to run um, any kind of commercial operation um, with the situation that they're in? Um, It's just, it's disappointing. And, and, And my feeling is it reflects poorly on the league rather than the club. To have no fans there whatsoever and have a dead environment, essentially, uh, that doesn't look great on TV, and it's a terrible advertisement for the, for the competition. So I think the A-League needs to, to think harder and do more, do better, uh, to support the Phoenix at a time like this. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, well, they had 500-and-something supporters at the last game uh, and virtually no one tonight. So, yeah, they're not getting any, any help off the park. Uh, uh, there's no secret about that. Um, have the Styrus household discussed the Justin Langer affair? Uh, and if they have, uh, what, is, what is the feeling within the Styrus household about Justin Langer and, and his, in inverted commas, resignation? I think you might be a little bit confused there, Smitty, to think that the Styrus household ever discussed anything cricket-related. Um, generally, <laughs> we... Uh, <laughs> if I say something to Scott about some sort of, I don't know, selection or coaching issue, he'll just look at me and he'll go, Nikki, you know nothing about that. Or Nikki, I don't care. 
well, Nikki, I don't want to talk about it. Um, and that's usually the response I get from Scott. So the answer to you regarding Justin Langer is we haven't discussed it. But obviously he, you know, and from, from what I've seen, um, you know, he was a very intense coach and he, he, he was unworkable with the, with the team and the players. And, you know, when you get some sort of mutiny happening from your senior, senior players, you know, something has to give and, and, and ultimately it did. Um, so who replaces him will be interesting to me, but I see old Silver will, would fell on his sword too. So interesting times in cricket coaching anyway. Maybe Scott should get a job yeah. in coaching Smithy. What do you think? Oh, look, he's such a layback sort of a guy, and, and he doesn't. You know, he just keeps himself <laughs> to himself. And, you know, he's never... I mean, he's never been prone to anything controversial uh, on and off the field. I think he's like the perfect... <laughs> The perfect candidate, Scott Storris. And the other, the other great asset he's got too, Nicky, is he's got a hell of a lot of time on his hands. That's the other thing he's got. Um, and just, 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 to, just to finish off uh, uh, Gord's uh, uh, this morning, player power, isn't it? It's out and out player power, and it's not uncommon. No, that's right. I'm a, I'm a wee bit reluctant to use the term player power, Smitty, because I, I, I prefer to sort of look at this and... Um, this example in isolation, right? There's a couple of things why I think people are feeling sympathy for Justin Langer. One is that he was basically charged with cleaning up the mess after South Africa and after Sandpaper Day. Um, so he, 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 he deserves a lot of... He, he got a lot of money in the bank in that regard in terms of um, rebuilding the, the culture, so to speak, but also the reputation of Australian cricket. And, and then it's the on-field performance aspect as well. He's guided them to a T20 World Cup and they've absolutely dominated the Ashes. So the timing in that sense is, is awful in that regard. Um, but we all know, and it's well documented, that, that he is a difficult character. And it, it perhaps is... I, I don't think it's any surprise that it's got to this point. It's the timing, I think, that is so unpalatable. And I think it's been really rich um, for, for some particular members um, of the Australian sports media, and I'm talking about former Australian cricketers, who, if I remember rightly, didn't speak all that well of John Buchanan when he uh, was in charge of a completely dominant Australian team. And, and they were quite happy to, to turn on him and, and say that he wasn't the right person for the job. And why did they do that? Because they were so confident in their own abilities that they were so professional and so good at their jobs that they didn't need someone like John Buchanan. And I'd argue maybe now, I'm not saying necessarily that this Australian team is, is um, you know, deserves to be compared to the great Australian team or teams of, of the late 90s and, and 2000s, but this is a pretty good Australian team. They are very, very professional. And this is a, we're in a, an era now where professional crickers should really be able to handle themselves in their own game. Um, so... Is, is cricket maybe a sport that lends itself to, like you say, player power? Players should be in charge of their own game and, and I suppose, and to a degree, in charge of their own destiny. And they should be more responsible, I think, for the, response, uh, for the performances that they put on the park. Andrew Gordy and Nicky Styrus have been uh, the panellists this morning and, uh, as always, uh, it's been great uh, catching up with them and listening to their uh, relative opinions. It's 10.45 here on SCNZ. He's the voice of sport in New Zealand. Nothing gets past Smithy. It's mornings with Ian Smith on SCNZ. On Newcastle 3, Everton 1 this morning. No goals for Chris Wood in that uh, Newcastle score sheet. Um, West Ham uh, got uh, a winner against Watford, uh, winning 1-0 uh, there. 
Uh, the other game is still in progress. They're into extra time, and Burnley have equalised against Manchester United, so a big goal for them, uh, but not a good goal for our multi. We need Manchester United to find some brilliance in the last uh, two or three minutes of extra time. Otherwise, that $4.06 goes begging. Uh, text has come in and said they lose the top players. We're talking about the Warriors here, and Nicky uh, Styrus's comment about uh, the possibility of uh, losing Reese Walsh prematurely. Uh, they lose the top players because the top players want to play in a team they think can win a grand final. So uh, there is that uh, particular, uh, yeah, that is that particular school of thought as well. And I, I think that's, that's fair. If you want to uh, ring uh, in basketball, you go to a team that uh, is going to provide you with a world championship NBA ring, um, if that is one of your goals in life. And uh, I guess as a sportsman, it should be. Uh, we're going to talk to Louis Herman Watt. There are races today at Ruakaka. I say, yeah, there's actually races today at Ruakaka. Good news there. Uh, Louis shortly. Dumps to behind the mic. You're in safe hands. It's Mornings with Ian Smith on ECNZ. The loveracing.nz update. Your home for everything thoroughbred racing. Visit loveracing.nz. Racing's biggest fan. <laughs> 10.57, Louis Herman Watt, you'll be all over this, but uh, Bruce Sharrick is the new NZTR chief executive, uh, brother of Alan, of course, uh, former, well, I guess he will be a former players manager now. He'll take over for Bernard Saundry in June. Louis, what do you make of that? Excellent signing, Smithy. Really, really good signing. A guy who's got deep roots in the industry, father, a great trainer, Al, um, Alan Sharrick, obviously an excellent trainer from rural New Zealand, North Canterbury, uh, North Canterbury, uh, Taranaki, of course, and, you know, really, really cares about an industry, but had a career outside it, which I think is most important. Smithy has built a business for himself, understands how the world of sports management and business works. It's um, kind of like, you know, the old saying about politicians, you know, do you really want a career politician or do you want someone who's had life experience? Well, Bruce understands what is dysfunctional about the racing industry because he's seen what a functional organisation and functional industries look like. So with that in mind, things like the track saga and, and bits and bobs like that, I have no doubt he'll take them in his stride and he'll actually try and create and enact change. I think this is an excellent signing. I think it made a lot of sense. I think myself and a lot of people would have been hoping this is the way that it would go if Bruce was keen for the job. And, um, yeah, I commend Cam George and the NZTR board for what I think is a promising step right forward for New Zealand Thoroughbred Racing. Well, Louis, you've got a uh, a race meeting today, believe it or not. We've actually got one. Ruakaka, have you got one for us? Yeah, I like Pinarello in race four, I think it is. Um, and I think it's going to be really hard to beat. And one we tipped out this morning, Tony Pike tipped it to us last week. It's been punted its nose off in the first total recall. Fours into 320 with Grilsley up. Okay, thank you very much, Louis. Um, Pip Morris from... The TAB this morning and Greyhounds today too, Pip, at Palmerston North. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, Pip, uh, we've just got Pip Morris um, up. Uh, yeah, Greyhounds from Palmerston North today, Pip? Certainly do. Yeah, 10 race. Smithy not too far away from this. We're getting underway as well. Ruakaka, we've got the 10 race card from there in around an hour and 24 minutes of the first bonus back races on both of the first two races as well. The plenty to look forward to there. And on the sports side of things, quite a few plays on the NBA today, the basketball, four and a half grand on Boston to cover the five and a half point start there against Brooklyn. And a couple of other low four-figure bets on that same selection as well. And of course, the same game claim is available on the NBA game. Thanks, Pip. Thank you very much. Yep. 
the machine continues to roll on through uh, the TAB. Uh, Greyhounds at Palmerston North. Uh, and if you're listening to Pip, uh, she will often tip out some good value bets with the dogs. Uh, we're going to speak coast to coast after the break. It, it is going ahead and it's slightly different format uh, this weekend. And Dougal Allen is our guest straight after the 11 o'clock news. And here's Emma. Day or night, summer or winter, he's the sound of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. 40th anniversary edition of the iconic Coast to Coast takes place this Saturday, albeit during a reduced format. Now, a man who knows uh, what it takes to win the gruelling multi-sport event is Dougal Allen, who's won uh, the one-day event in 2019 and last year, as well as winning the two-day event uh, back in 2008. Uh, Dougal, thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, how many, how many coast-to-coast uh, uh, coast have you actually been involved in? Yeah, oh, this will be my 10th time as an athlete, and uh, I sort of uh, did my first race in 2008, so it's been a big chunk of my life, uh, the best part of, yeah, more than a decade, really, so it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be involved again, and obviously with, with the uncertainty surrounding this year's event in particular, and it being the 40th anniversary, I'm just pleased that the guys have been able to get it across the line. Yeah, it is. Uh, you'll be absolutely thrilled about that. But not just uh, not just for the sake of the fact that all uh, if it doesn't, all the training goes to waste a wee bit, but uh, as you say, it's the 40th anniversary. It's a special one. Yeah, it is. It's amazing to think. There's not too many events of any kind in New Zealand, certainly not endurance races like Coast to Coast that have that sort of history. So um, there's been some incredible names attached to the event over the years, not just the elite athletes that have come and won the race, but even the likes of Richie McCaw, who's been involved in it in recent years. And most Kiwis know about it, and a lot of Kiwis um, want to do it or have done it. So it's in our DNA, I think, as Kiwis. And and to see the 40th anniversary roll around is um, pretty special, really, eh? It is, uh, Dougal. It is, um, and I just wonder how do uh, people that know the race well, how will they find it differs this year uh, in terms of its its format, its makeup? Well, part of that's a wait and see game right now because we've got a hell of a lot of weather coming through tonight and into tomorrow, which you know, the very nature of the coast to coast course being through the mountains and on the rivers of the South Island, it's um, subject to nature, and <laughs> right now nature's having its say. So. They do have a plan B and even a plan C course. So right now it could look and feel very different to previous years, not just uh, because of the COVID changes, but also because the course itself may have to adjust around weather patterns. But, um, yeah, as I say, we'll we'll wait and see what actually comes of it. But multi-sport and adventure racing, as we call it, is um, by its very nature a game of adapting and, and rolling with the punches. So... I think you'll you'll find that the athletes and the event management will will sort of take it in their stride. It'll be a little bit stressful at times having to change things last minute, but that's sort of what we're all about in this sport. Well, if they change it, it'll probably uh, go down from the format that we've been given, uh, Dougal, which is uh, around about 11 hours. So that's uh, beginning with a 3K run, 55K cycle, 30.5K mountain run. Good God, I'm tired. Uh, then another 15K cycle, a 70-kilometre kayak and finally a 70-kilometre cycle. So they say for the you know 11 hours, 
uh, but as, as you've just pointed out, that changes with uh, the conditions, the you know the the water and the and the rivers, etc., like that, the slippery nature of the course. So you don't know yet, but at the moment, that is probably about what you're expecting. Yeah, I'd say there's probably easier ways to get from the west coast across to Christchurch, eh? But um, <laughs> yeah, that's what we choose to do, and. Those of us like myself with a short attention span, it's quite nice having different sports to look forward to because whatever I'm doing at the time, I'm generally looking forward to changing to something else. And, um, yeah, it's amazing how when you break something down into smaller parts like that, uh, yeah, before you know it, you've woken up in bed on the on the West Coast and you're going to bed um, over in Christchurch, uh, the sum of all parts, I guess you say. So it's a bit of a logistical um challenge for support crews and things because every athlete has a support crew that follows them through the transitions and sort of sets their gear up for them um, but as I say doing 10 of these this will be my 10th um, looking back it was never a case of being overwhelmed by the entirety of the task at hand it's just always been a case of dealing with the the present situation doing your best with that and then moving on to the next thing and as I say before you know it, 11 hours is gone. So you hold the, the record for the fastest finish in cycling, which is quite incredible. Uh, is that your strength, cycling? Is the bike your, your strength, or uh, or are you just uh, basically to you know to win this event? You can't be too weak at anything, I'd imagine. Are you an all rounder? You focus on everything equally. Yeah, I suppose so. Cycling was my strength for a long time. Kayaking sort of then became my strength more in recent years, but. Um, because my ambition was always to try and win the coast to coast, I knew I had to basically be pretty classy at all three. So um, there's areas of weakness still, and, and elite athletes will always be looking for ways to be better and faster and stronger and smarter and those sorts of things. So I certainly wouldn't call myself the complete package, but um, I'd like to think there's no glaring opportunities for my competition to pounce because I'd like to think I've got my bases covered in most parts of that course. Mentally, um, how, how big is the coast-to-coast coast, uh, mentally uh, throughout the event? I mean, how many times, for instance, might you hit the traditional wall as they do in the marathon from time to time? Yeah, definitely. I think the mental aspect, uh, now more than ever, really, having all this uncertainty leading into the race, um, is going to be huge, um, not just for those of us trying to win the race, but for anyone trying to get across that course on the day. Uh, the fact is when you're doing 11, 12, some of them up to sort of 17 hours of continuous racing, you're just going to, there's no way you're going to have a smooth pass, you know, it's not going to go to plan and you're going to have a lot of opportunities to give up, I call them, um, moments where you really question why you're doing it and um, it's it, it can be very easy to, to pull out in those moments when, when you know how much you've still got to navigate to get to the finish line. So mentally you're going to have to be really attached to why you're there in the first place and um, and through perseverance most people will get to the end but certainly not everyone and every year we see 10, 15, up to 20% of athletes not make it to the end. So it's something I never take for granted and, and the mental aspect is usually the, the make or break for me. What drives you then, Dougal? I mean, I'm not just talking about event day. I, I imagine... Uh, there's a fair amount of ad- adrenaline that gets you uh, up and ready on race day. But what about training days? I think it's it's all the same to me, like training and racing. The big driver for me is just a curiosity about what I can do. And I just live for those moments where 
where I'm forced to ask myself some really, really big questions. And they're questions that people will never ask themselves if they lean towards comfort every day. And in this day and age, comfort's everywhere. It's accessible wherever we look. Technology's available to help make things easier for us. And I just, I've always believed that's not in our DNA. We're hunter-gatherers and, and discomfort is how we've um, found our way through life. So that, that's what I live for, to be honest. Is, um, and it's my why is um, I, I want to ask myself the big questions because I want to know if I've got the answers when it really counts. And I certainly won't always have the answers, but uh, the more I expose myself to those moments, I think the more empowering um, my life becomes and it, it enriches me. So without getting too deep and meaningful, that's sort of really what drives me both in training and on race day. So outside of the coast to coast, uh, what other endurance uh, multi-sport events uh, do you compete in? I mean, how you sound like you want to be challenged. You sound like you, you know, pretty much every day of your life you want to be challenged in some capacity. So what else do you compete in as such? Well, in my sort of 15, 16 years of being an elite athlete, I've, I've done Ironman triathlon races around the world, had some, had some successes as a professional Ironman athlete. Wasn't always sort of my real passion being on the road and in in sort of more urban environments I really like getting wild and remote so I've done adventure racing which is sort of the team format in different parts of the world I'm doing this year's God's Own Adventure Race which for those that don't know is sort of a five to six day non-stop multi-sport event in teams of four through the South Island of New Zealand Um, and then multi-sport which is more that individual format which is what the coast to coast is so I guess when I sort of put it all together, I've probably um, trained and competed to a competitive level in about eight or nine different sports. And yeah, I don't want people to think I'm some sort of robot that doesn't feel pain because yeah, I I get it wrong a lot and I have given up and and not finished events in the past as well. So I'm I'm only human, but as I say, I I thrive on on those opportunities to either give up or, or push on. Apart from the course itself, uh, looking at the field for this year's Coast to Coast, uh, who are your rivals? Who, the, who are the guys uh, you're perhaps looking out for the most? Yeah, well, what I love about the Coast to Coast and the elite races, they're people that most Kiwis probably don't ever hear about, but if you um, follow them on race day, you'll, you'll soon know that these are really, really classy people, really classy athletes, usually balancing full-time jobs and families and things, but... Just for, for a few names for people to follow, Sam Manson has come second a few times and he, his full-time job is actually guiding people through that course so he knows every nook and cranny. So Sam Manson, a couple of other Christchurch guys, Sam Goodall and Ryan Kizanowski and then a North Islander from up in Te Puki, a guy called Bobby Dean who's a really, really strong runner. So I think between the five of us, that's sort of your, your contenders for the podium. So... Can I ask you um, the camaraderie? I mean, very competitive, very physically taxing. Uh, and, I, I, you know, when you finish it at the head of the pack, uh, it's forever like uh, the rest of the group kind of get there, you know, the, the, the lesser performed athletes. So do you hang around? I mean, what's the camaraderie like? Yeah, I think in this sport it's huge because none of us are doing it for fame or fortune. It's certainly not a, a, a mainstream sport with professional opportunities like other sports. So... We really do do it for the love and, and for me personally the, the people and the community involved in the sport is pretty much the biggest attraction. So 
you know, those those guys I've just mentioned, I consider them all really good mates. Sam Matson, my, my biggest rival, he and I are actually teammates for the God Zone a few weeks later. So that probably gives you a bit of an idea of how that kind of dynamic happens between athletes in the sport. It's um it's also a mutual respect thing, you know. I like I, I arrive at the start line knowing just how much I've invested in the last six months to be there and, and I look around and I see guys that have done the same thing and as I say a lot of them have families and businesses and run farms and those sorts of things so there's huge respect between us but I mean don't get me wrong when when the gun goes we're out to um, throw as many punches at each other as we can. Dougal uh, I mean it's such an individual sport it's such a unique sport as such Uh, who who have uh, do you have role models I mean who who have you looked up to um, in this type of uh, of event, this this gut busting thing that absolutely stretches every bit of your emotion and your physicality. Have you had role models as such? Yeah, I don't I don't have huge role models within the sport, perhaps as such. But with the coast to coast, I have long admired guys like Steve Gurney and Richard Usher, who have won it multiple times in the past. I'm actually coached by Gordon Walker, who won it three times, but listeners will probably know Gordon Walker more as the coach of Lisa Carrington and now Halberg, you know, coach of the decade. So he's been a huge influence on me and I, I really um, feel privileged to be under his tutelage. But um, outside of that, you know, role models in my life are people like my dad and um, I really admire my yeah. wife for the way she sort of demonstrates her own kind of ability to chase her own passions and different avenues. So, yeah. Uh, influences come from all angles, but yeah, the, the sport itself, coast to coast, um, and multi-sport has a long list of um, very, you know, Kiwis that have done some pretty amazing things, both in this race in New Zealand, but also around the world. And in the adventure racing world, you go across to other parts of um, the world, and they all know about the Kiwis because it's it's a sport we've always been world class at. Dougal, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm uh, so looking forward to the event, probably um, not as much as you because uh, uh, it's your thing, uh, but I, I certainly now, having found out a lot more about it and the people involved, will take a lot of interest in what happens uh, this weekend. Let's hope nah, Mother Nature is kind to you, you get the conditions that will test you, but you, uh, will, uh, you'll enjoy as well. So uh, good luck, uh, good luck on, uh, on getting a, another title and thanks for your time, it's been very enlightening. Thanks, Matthew, I appreciate it. That is the breaking news, Sting Smithy. And we've got some breaking news for you. New Zealand Cricket and Cricket Australia have agreed to abandon the Black Caps' upcoming T20 mini-series scheduled to be played in your neck of the woods, Napier, next month. The short four-day-long series set down for McLean Park on Napier and Napier on March 17, 18 and 20 was initially arranged on the basis of the New Zealand government's plan to relax the restrictions at the Trans-Tasman border. However, with those plans now substantially delayed and no MIQ accommodation available for the Aussies on their scheduled arrival to New Zealand, New Zealand cricket has been given no choice but to abandon the series. We all knew this was coming, Smithy, but now it's official. Dollar one and shortening, John. Um, a dollar one and shortening. I wondered why it actually took so long uh, for that to eventuate. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, so uh, I was quite surprised actually they designated it for Napier, um, and, and on the basis, of course, they, they were going to play it behind basically behind closed doors. So Napier's a nice venue for it. You get a good pitch for it, and it would have come up good on television. But 
you know, Napier would never be used for a series against uh, between New Zealand and Australia because it's not a, a big ground in, in terms of bringing the money in. So oh, I had my doubts. Uh, as soon as we said no to them, I didn't think they were at any stage going to bend over backwards to say yes to us. And that is, I think it's going to be a, a bit of a problem going forward because, uh, you know, we, we tend to not go places or come out of places uh, a bit of late. And uh, you don't want to develop a reputation for that. I know it's a difficult world, and I know it's not easy for people to be away from home from time to time. But at this point in time, it just seems to be uh, that we're pulling in and out of things in cricket, more so perhaps in other things. Just my opinion, looking from the outside in. It's 11.19 here on SENZ. Nothing gets past Smithy. It's mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. You want to win $5,000? Of course you do. Register for the Reese Super Rugby Fan of the Year competition now at SENZ forward slash fan of the year. SENZ, all in small letters, forward slash fan of the year. And register by the 17th of this month to secure your spot. Each round, entrants need only pick one Super Rugby team they believe will win from the six games being played in that round. Lose, you're out of the competition. Simple as that. Win you stay in. So it's a bit of a last man standing thing, isn't it? Uh, simply put, tip one team that you think will win their game within that round. You don't have to have the same team each week. If your team loses, you're out, Gonski. You win, you remain in the running for the epic $5,000 cash prize. And that's all thanks to our really good mates at Reese. Uh, John, so yeah, interesting. Uh, other And uh, you, you're saying that the Netherlands and the Black Caps will uh, be... Locking horns still at McLean Park, though. Yeah, so that's been changed. So McLean Park looks like it'll get no cricket if they didn't play those T20s, which have just been uh, cancelled by uh, Cricket Australia and New Zealand Cricket. So they have moved the T20 that was going to be played against the Netherlands at Bay Oval to McLean Park in mid to late March. So that's about seven or eight weeks away, Smithy. Hopefully... What do you think is going to happen with crowds at sport? I mean, this is going to happen during the Women's Cricket World Cup as well. We need fans at these big grounds during this massive event, but at the same time, the government is being very careful uh, with Omicron. Um, so what's going to happen here? Are we going to have crowds for our marquee events, these World Cups that are coming up? So we're looking at uh, less than a month away. Uh, so it begins, I think, on March the 3rd or March the 4th, the opening ceremony and the first match. Uh, at the moment, uh, you'd say no. But now, here's the thing. This is a world event, and the rest of the world now are enjoying fans at their particular events, aren't they? Full houses at American sport, yep. full houses at UK football, um, not necessarily full houses at the Beijing Olympics, and I'm not quite sure whether that is because of COVID protocols or because of the fact they just can't get people to go. Uh, but certainly speaking, uh, some of those events are, are in front of um, not not great crowds, pockets of crowds you can see, and maybe that's the way uh, the World Cup cricket organisers have to go about this. They've got to make every effort to ensure, not just for the, the sake of our New Zealand team, uh, who need help, they need encouragement, not just for those sake, but for the sake of the world. Now, how many people, John, how easy is it to get into this country uh, to come? If you support Australia, you support the UK, uh, can you get here if you support England? No. Get, I mean, Indian, the Indian team will have support anyway because wherever Indian cricket teams play around the world, people uh, living in that particular country will come and support them. But will they be able to come in? And it was encouraging to listen to Jacob Oram, just you might have picked up this morning, uh, will there be pockets of 100 round the ground? 
so maybe you can get uh, a thousand odd people on the ground. Uh, I would be assuming a thousand people would be pretty cool at some of our stadiums. Uh, and I've seen it happen at domestic rugby. I saw it happen at Inglewood. I've seen it happen at McLean Park. You can put them in. Uh, and I just hope they are. I hope they're, they're going to do that. But it's going to be a bad look when these pictures are go around the world, a really bad look yep. if no one's at a world event. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you've been part of a home World Cup before in 92. We saw it in 2011 with the Rugby World Cup and then again the Cricket World Cup in 2015. It just adds so much when there's full crowds and, and people walking around the street. There's a buzz throughout the whole country. I'm just worried for the White Ferns' sake uh, with their own performance not getting buoyed on by a massive crowd and just New Zealand as a whole. Like, we love these World Cups. We embrace them. We embrace all the different teams and countries that come here. It's just not going to have that buzz, which is a, a damn shame because we've put it off by a year already to get that buzz. And, and we've, we've kind of just slipped behind and the global pecking order with uh, dealing with these events and maybe spacing people out and get, and making it happen and getting big crowds. I just hope that they're putting in a massive effort to make it a, a huge tournament and that team of five million we always talk about, Smithy, can back up the White Ferns. John, you're absolutely right. Uh, we can talk more about this after uh, around about 11.40 if you like because uh, I regard uh, this White Ferns team having about the same chance of winning the World Cup as we did back in 1992. We were not in the hunt in terms of favouritism to win that World Cup, and we all know what happened there. And I can tell you, and I'll talk to that uh, around about 11.40, as to the effect New Zealand had, New Zealand people, and playing at home, and uh, what help we got psychologically uh, and physically from our fans. I can tell you it's massive. Um, and so, so I'd like, we'll discuss that a little bit later but right now of course it's coming up to 11.30 uh, and it is Stump Smithy time 0800 150 is the phone number uh, a chance today and yes it's a race day uh, to put 50 bucks into your phone account uh, and maybe pick up some sleep drops as well 0800 150 Wednesday hump day bloody humid up here in Auckland it's ridiculous uh, so what better to way to break up your week than winning 50 bucks from the TAB in a week quiz with Smithy as well as some Sleep Drops Daytime Revive. They are New Zealand's only specialist range of sleep and stress support supplements. Head down to Foxton, one of our favourite parts in New Zealand with the best fizzy drink going around. Chris, good morning to you. Good morning, my friend. How are you, mate? Yeah. How are, you're, you're the horse trainer, is that right? Or do you break uh, them in? Or well, are you the yeah. boxer? Yeah, I break them, yeah, break them in. I used to have a licence um, to, to train, but... Um, Oh, I gave that up. There wasn't any money in it. But um, do a bit of breaking horses in, you know. Yeah, nice. Well, there's a little bit of money yeah, in this if you can get three quiz questions right against Smithy. So your subjects today are boxing, cricket and tennis. Which one of those do you like well, best? It's going to be boxing, mate, yeah. Absolutely, because you were a former champion of some sort. Is that right? Just refresh my memory. Yeah, won a junior flyweight championship in '64, uh, and um, won the most scientific boxers trophy, and um, was runner-up a couple of times in the senior divisions of uh, flyweight and bantamweight. Love that most scientific yeah. boxer. Well, hopefully that helps you with this quiz today. Let's go. <laughs> we can only hope. All right, question number one on boxing. 
The 1980 film Raging Bull, starring Robert De Niro and directed by Martin Scorsese, was based on which former American middleweight boxer? Uh, oh, that'd have to be um, Marvin Hogler. One of the worst things I have ever seen okay. done on a cricket field. <laughs> Not correct. Sorry, Chris. Smithy, do you know the movie Raging Bull? Uh, I know the movie. Um... It's certainly not Marvin Hagler, and it's certainly not anyone of the modern era. I'm going to go Rocky Marciano. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Not correct either, so he's still alive, Chris. It was Jake LaMotta. Yeah. Yeah, Marciano was a heavyweight, wasn't he? Oh, there we go. Getting schooled already, Smithy. Question number two from Chris. All right. Who was the first heavyweight boxer to beat Anthony Joshua at Madison Square Garden in 2019? Um, oh, it's a guy, um, guy from South America that fought Joseph Parker. Um, oh, it's in my head. Um, no, you're on the right track. Yeah, it was uh, Perez, uh, Perez or something, a name like that. Um, before Joseph Parker, anyway. He did, he did, but it's not yeah, one of the worst things I have ever seen yeah. done on a cricket no. field. Smithy, can you remember his name? Carlos Ruiz. That's one it. of the worst yeah. things I have ever seen oh. done on a cricket field. <laughs> Andy Ruiz. Andy Ruiz oh, Jr. No, Stunned you the can't world. pull me up on that. You well, can't pull me up. Well, on I that. don't know, Smithy. What was it, Carlos Ruiz? Mm. Uh, the, the correct last name, but you know, uh, Richie Beno has spoken. One of the worst things he's heard, so it's not correct, unfortunately. But good for you, Chris. Question number three: yeah, For everything, for the sleep drops, for the fifty bucks. At what age did Mike Tyson win his first heavyweight world championship? Twenty years old. Just a couple of chips down the wicket, right in the slot. The way it goes. Yes, Chris. Well done. 20 years old, Smithy, to win a world championship in heavyweight boxing. Man, you've got to grow up quick to do that. But the result is, Chris, you win 50 bucks from the TAB and some Sleep Drops Daytime Revive. Go to sleepdrops.co.nz. They're for all ages, lifestyle st- stages, and sleeping challenges. Congratulations to you. Thank you very much. I have to get Smithy to give me a winner to put it on. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, okay, I think it's Celesi in race three. Celesi in race three today. Uh, Brennan Popperworld oh, took yeah. this yesterday. So race three, have a look at that one, uh, Chris. Uh, all the best, man. Well done. I think it's twice in a row you've knocked me over. So uh, well done. Me and uh, me and Carlos Ruiz uh, will eat humble pie yet again. Uh, it's yeah, 11.30. Stay on yeah, the line, yeah, too. Stay on the line. Yeah. <laughs> Brian will get your details. 11.37 here on SENZ. Uh, and uh, we'll take a short break, be back with uh, yeah, uh, some comments about what it's like to play at home in a World Cup. Behind the stumps to behind the mic, you're in safe hands. It's Mornings with Ian Smith on SCNZ. It's 11.42 here on SCNZ, and uh, the White Ferns, of course, are playing at home. They're playing today, actually. Uh, they're playing a T20 international against India at John Davies Oval in Queenstown, uh, behind closed doors, basically. Uh, and that's the subject, uh, John, I was just briefly touching on before 11.30 about playing World Cup behind closed doors. Now, uh, I have none, haven't done that. Um, I've commentated a bit of sport behind closed doors, but I haven't actually played behind closed doors. Uh, but I have played a World Cup at home, and uh, that was uh, 1992, so 30 years ago. 
but my lasting memory of that World Cup is the crowds. Uh, it's it's not the disappointment of, of actually not winning it in that last game against Pakistan, but it's the crowds and the fever and the and the massive wave that you, you basically hopped on your surfboard and went around New Zealand on. Uh, it was just terrific from a playing point of view. And um, I, I know we live in a different world, but that is one of the things that uh, somehow uh, they're going to have to replicate for this team. Now, uh, we went into that World Cup in 1992. Uh, we weren't favourites. Uh, we didn't have a, you know, a boldest chance, really. In fact, our form leading into it was awful. Uh, we played a series against England, and uh, we didn't look good at all. Um, so uh, we, we went into that. Um, without too many hopes uh, of the nation, I'm sure. Uh, but we had a great draw, and our great draw it was either one you hated or one you loved, but it, it turned out to be one you loved because it was Australia first, and Australia are always a World Cup favourite. So, uh, so uh, to, to play Australia and beat Australia at Eden Park, I don't think it was a full house that day. I don't think the expectations were that high. Um, I think people were World Cup cricket in New Zealand was so new that people were just trying to test the waters in it. Uh, but by the end of the day, uh, the ground had filled up. By the end of the day, when I remember Andrew Jones taking a catch to win the game at the end of day one, uh, there were a lot of people on the ground, a heap of people on the ground. In fact, commentators like Tony Gregg said, this is a shambles. You can't have a World Cup where people get on the ground. Uh, but that was the feeling um, that you got. You actually had to run off the field for your own safety. It was fantastic with the crowd coming on. Um, and it grew from there. Uh, and the way it grew from there, John, is that like, it grew off the field. Um, you, you, you just, wherever you went, um, you, you just got encouraged. You had people pat you on the back. Uh, taxi drivers give you a free ride. Simple. People, yeah. would, you'd go out and pay for a meal and it would be half paid for or fully paid for by somebody else. It, it was hard to buy a beer. You know, Adley, you hear that saying? It, it, it'd be hard for him to buy a beer anywhere. It's damn true. Yeah. It was hard to buy a beer. Um, and it was just like, it was a heck of a thing uh, to be part of. I hope, and here's the thing, this, uh, this White Ferns team are pretty much the same. They're not favourites. Uh, they won't be. Uh, they play the West Indies on March the 4th at Bay Oval. It's game one for them. At the moment, uh, it'll look pretty empty mm. uh, unless they can find pockets to fill those beautiful grassy banks somehow. Um, there won't be a lot of atmosphere. That's what they're going to miss out on. They're going to miss out on that wave yeah. if we're not careful. Um, and, and that was a major factor, I promise you, in the spirit of that side. And the, and the way that team grew uh, and the way that individuals rose to the occasion. Uh, you know, the Mark Greatbatch story is, is you know, one of, of great history in terms of he wasn't even perhaps going to play. He was given an opportunity. Martin Crow said, you're going to play, uh, but you have to open the batting. He, being who he was, Paddy just said, give me a chance. And we all know what happened after that. Yeah. Uh, he just lit up, that lit up that tournament along with Rod Latham. And there was, their starts were one of the reasons we, we went so far. But... You know, Justin and Paddy, he's one of those guys, Mark Greatbatch would be the first guy to tell you, um, you know, the crowd was big for him. It pumped him up. It really got him going. And, and um, you know, and, and that's what will happen. Even the most experienced of these white fern cricketers will rise to the occasion when they just see a level of support that you get at normal World Cups. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's what's going to be missing. I hope not. And that first game had so many iconic moments. The, the run out of David Boone, uh, Chris Harris side on from the 30 metre 
circle. Martin Crow just uh, making runs for fun. Great batches uh, when he's uh, horizontal to the ground, taking catches in the outfield. It just these uh, you know, Deepak Patel opening the bowling. There are all these iconic moments mm. in these in that first game that just caught like wildfire through. It was throughout all the news. Um, I was a nine year old kid at the time, and I certainly knew uh, who the New Zealand cricket team were after that. I didn't have a lot of interest in cricket growing up until that moment in that tournament and that's what tournaments like this can do Smithy, it can sweep up the kids the whole nation, all of a sudden everyone's talking about it at work, but if no one can go to the games, I know the White Ferns like you guys in 92 are going to be playing in pretty much every cricketing centre in New Zealand but they're going to be doing it without crowds, so does it, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a noise kind of thing, you know? Wow, that's pretty deep John, I like that uh, Yeah, very good <laughs> no, but you're right. You're absolutely dead right. Uh, and you know that that is uh, the other thing about this uh, team is there's a lot of experience in this team, which is going to be good for them. But it's also their last chance. Uh, they won't play another World Cup at home. But realistically, there's no chance in the world that Sophie Devine and uh, Susie Bates, um, you know, uh, any of these uh, these women that have done such a great job for us over the years, Amy Satterthwaite, Katie Martin, no, they they won't be playing World Cups again at home. This is their one-off chance. And we all know what happened when they got a one-off chance last time around the New Zealand women's cricket team at home. They won it. They lifted and they won it. Yeah. Uh, and those were the days where they had crowds. So uh, I just hope from uh, the perspective of this whole tournament that uh, they are able to have some winning press conferences. Uh, and on that subject, how about old Jason Tomalolo yesterday and his press conference? What I do with my body, well, that's my information, folks. That didn't go down too well, John. No, and fair enough too, um, because if you want to go to games, if you want to watch Jason Tomalolo play for the Cowboys, uh, you've got to be vaccinated uh, going into the stadium. So you have to give up your personal medical information to see him play, but he's not willing in front of a press conference to tell his fans whether he's vaccinated or not. Uh, The way it's working with the NRL is they're not mandating vaccinations. So... You know, uh, they're not making players get vaccinated to play in the NRL. Uh, but if you catch COVID, you can get a four-month, uh, what is it called when you're allowed to play from the government? Exemption. A four-month exemption once you've got COVID uh, to play. So he's got an exemption to start the season. But when the journalists say, hey, can you play the full NRL season? He said, no, nah, it's, it's my body. It's my information. I don't want anyone to know. This is a guy getting paid a million dollars a season. Smithy, and people are paying to see him play. I think as a fan, if one of the stars in my team said, I'm not letting you know whether I'm vaccinated or not to play, I'd be pretty disappointed. So as a leader as well in the Tongan community, a very important guy, Jason Tomalolo, I thought it was a bit childish and a bit uh, self-serving yesterday, his performance at that press conference. I was pretty disappointed. Yeah, and a lot of people were. A lot of people were very, very disappointed. Uh, the coach, Todd Payton, uh, confirmed his entire squad was compliant to take the field this season. Compliant in inverted commas. That's interesting. Yeah, and well, you've asked people on the show before, Sulu Fitzpatrick at the end of last year, are you vaccinated? Yes, she said. Julian Savia, are you vaccinated? Yes, he said. It's not a difficult question. Either yes or no. And if you aren't vaccinated, back yourself. Say, I'm not vaccinated because of this and this, and these are the reasons. And I think most people are like, oh, okay, at least you're open and honest about your reasons rather than saying, no, I'm not answering any more questions about this. And then a staffer from the Cowboys had to come into the press conference and tell journalists to stop asking questions. Just an absolute shambles. And Jason Malolo, this will not go away. You are a marquee player in the NRL. So look forward to many more press conferences like that, Jason.
Ah, yep. Uh, I certainly, uh, <laughs> I certainly do, and and because of that, you know what it's like uh, when you turn your don't turn your back on the media, but uh, you deny them a reasonable answer, or um, you know you you keep dodging the issue with them. Uh, media tend to have, from my memory, John, quite long memories. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Israel Folau, what had to leave. Leave Australia to get away from the media, essentially. So, yeah, it's going to be something we see this NRL season a lot of, Smithy. Okay, we've had a couple of uh, texts come in. I think you're right. This Women's World Cup won't be the same without a crowd. I know it won't, Jared. You're absolutely right. Uh, another number has come in from, uh, from, I won't say the number, but he says, I work for Sky. Okay, I, I, I might know you, I might not. Uh, a lot of people I don't know work at Sky, especially these days. To be fair, uh, comparing New Zealand men's cricket to women's football in terms of interest in World Cups is uh, is night and day. Well, yeah, uh, well, it's different, isn't it? Of course, it's new, but women's sport uh, is making great strides. And uh, I would imagine if you uh, work at Sky, you're probably aware of, of the ratings, and and women's sport are getting more and more ratings uh, all the time as they get more and more profile and more professional. Um, and it, uh, you speak to a lot of administrators, uh, and particularly New Zealand rugby for a while, the school of thought was uh, that women's rugby was the biggest growth area they had available to them. Uh, and and uh, a lot of people in high places in sport will say the same thing. So at the moment, cor- cor- absolutely correct. But this one, this one uh, we're, all we're saying this is for, we hope it has the opportunity to test the waters in terms of uh, on-the-ground support. Um, and uh, that, that is yet at the point we're trying to make there. We know there's a difference in, in levels of support. Um, and, and other other things, but it's closing. I, I promise you, it's closing. Like it or not, it's closing. I like it. Eleven fifty-two.